Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co-host, Chris Wolf, and joining us this week, our radio roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, also a newly elected member of the Brookline School Committee, from Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy, and also with us, our station manager, Peter J. Yay, us. Yes, indeed. Yay, us. I was absent last week, so I'm back with a flash today. And let's uh, let's get started. I want you to think about a number. 31.4 trillion. That is 31,4 followed by 11 zeros. Sorry, I don't have that much on me. That's Nobody's got that much ink in their pen either. <laughs> oh, are we talking about my paycheck last there, week? Ooh. Is that what the subject is? <laughs> Following in the foots of Clarence Thomas. Uh, but put a dollar sign in front of that, and you have the amount of money the U.S. Treasury was authorized to borrow to pay the government's bills this fiscal year. And that limit was reached in January. At that time, the Treasury used what they call extraordinary measures to obtain an additional $800 billion, 800 followed by only nine zeros. Now, that amount was expected to carry us through at, to at least July, maybe September. June 1st is now being posited as our most likely default date. That's 21 days, and that's 21 with no zeros following, or three weeks from the time of taping of this show. And as if this were not enough for us to chew on, we have the Trump verdict, the Santos arrest, and the Georgia false electors. The 2020 election, the ultimate pundit's pal. Who'd like to kick us off? Well, I just want to compliment that, uh, oh. that wonderful opening. That's that. That's a great monologue, there, buddy. <laughs> and a wonderful buffet. Yes, yeah. We can we can pick and choose. Yes. Well, lots of canapes. Well, this is Frank Falvey, and I'd like to begin. Frank, with I'm sorry, I didn't introduce you. I apologize, no, Frank no Falvey. Problem. Back to the table. One of the founders of this feast, and we are glad he is. Yes. L let me put this in a different light and perspective. That's what uh, you're here for. That's what I do best. $31 trillion, $12 trillion, which has been incurred in the last four years between uh, former president and our present president. And remember when everyone is saying that we're going to default, money still comes in. Starting June 1st, the Treasury is still going to be getting tons and tons of money. How much they get every month depends on the, on the month. So in past years where we have not, 
where, where our expenditures have reached more than the money coming in, we have set priorities and we have laid people off. We need this debt ceiling and we need it tied to some sort of spending reform that is effective within the next three years. Because when they say they have a deal that 10 years out, it will be a positive effect. That's ridiculous because after three years, you have a new president, a new Congress, they change it. So right now, where have have been the last, I don't know, 60, 70 years in a spending mood, we can't stop spending. This debt ceiling uh, that we're going to reach, okay, has to be faced. And we should not allow the debt ceiling to be increased without future because the worst alternative, everyone is saying, well, the interest rates are going to go up. People are going to be laid off from their jobs. We're not going to be able to pay the interest. Bad things are going to happen. Yes, bad things could happen. But what is the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen is the Chinese government, which is in a credit position, at some point can simply say, along with the movement of France and the European Union, China will become the nation that all money internationally is paid in. It won't be U.S. dollars. It will be the yen. We have put ourselves in a precarious position by not controlling the spending. And it has to stop now. It has to stop with this vote. And it can't be a 10-year plan. There has to be more thought of how we need to handle the debt and spending in the future. We already are going to face a recession coming up, I believe, within the next year. But I'll leave it there and let you comment on uh, what I have indicated. Well, I'll jump in and say that there are a number of points, I think, that Frank makes around our spending that are very important. First, you can't keep spending without knowing what your income is or increasing. You can't increase your spending unless you increase your income. Otherwise, all you do is end up with debt. And that part, I think, Frank makes a very good point. In our country, however, we have two separate means of making sure that America's debt is paid. One of them is that we can borrow money in order to pay our debt. The other is you can raise taxes or cut spending. However, the the separation between those two, there's a very bright line. Our spending is when we borrow money, our making sure that we spend money to pay that debt is separate from the budgetary process where you look at cutting spending or raising your income. And that's the part that many of our citizens just don't comprehend. They think that that they are both, well, one in the same system. They are not. When we reach our debt limit, that's only a part of the function that says, okay, if your debt is greater than what you're bringing in, you've got to raise the limit to pay off to make, to make sure that your debt gets paid. Now, once the, once the limit is raised, in other words, if your credit card company says you have 
a spending limit of $5,000. And okay, so now you know that if I spend more than $5,000, I'm going to be over my limit that the bank gave me, correct? In our country, it works the same way. However, because our Constitution allows our federal government to spend more than it brings in, when you reach that limit, that limit has to be raised in order to match the spending that you've already incurred. And that's, again, the part where we are now. Raising the limit does nothing to the deficit. It does nothing to our future spending. It does nothing for our future income. It's all about raising the limit that we can go to borrow. Congress basically takes on the same role as the bank. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So this is where I am so upset with, and I'll put part of the blame on those of us as educators, that we have a citizenry that does not understand our civics in terms of our economics, especially at the federal level, with respect to how things happen in this country. And as a result, our citizens get manipulated by political party, by partisan and uh, rhetoric. And that's what's happening now, Frank. Your argument, I think, is well made, except those two have a bright, those two things, our future spending and the debt limit are not co-joined at any point. The debt limit is only to try to pay the bills of things that we have all, that Congress and this country have already set. I disagree with uh, your point that they're not linked together. Your point that maybe we're missing raising income to, to offset spending, but they are linked together. The higher the debt limit, the more we're going to spend. And the other thing is, if we approve a debt limit this week or, or approve the next debt limit and we raise it, before the Biden administration is over with, we will be faced with raising the debt limit again. And it's like the immigration question. How many people are you going to allow in the country? How many millions? Is there a number at which you've got to say no? There is a number now on the debt limit that we have to say no. We either need to raise income or we need to reduce spending or we need to find another alternative. But we can't continue because the world, including Europe and France, particularly in China, will change the economic system that internationally we will be faced with. And we, the arms in Ukraine, why can't we have a special tax? Why don't we suffer along with the Ukrainians about the war and pay with a special tax instead of just incurring higher debt because we're giving the arms to Ukraine. Don't we all, wouldn't we all step up and say, yes, I'll contribute a special tax to help pay for the Ukrainian war? I don't, yeah, I don't but, know if everybody would, but you know, I, I get what you're saying, Frank, in terms of increasing the tax base and that's important. But, you know, going back to, since you brought in all these other countries, the United States is, I think, pretty alone in the world in having a debt limit. You know, a lot of the, the EU says, 
please don't spend, you know, has guidelines around 60% of your GDP, you know, but countries frequently cross that. There's no penalty. It gives the flexibility that we need. And, you know, I'm not an economist, but my understanding is that if we don't increase the debt limit, we will default on the existing debt, as Michael was saying. And that was That's incorrect. That's incorrect because what I said earlier, we still receive money every month. So we can set priorities that we won't default on debt debt because we we won't pay salaries. I mean, what's the option? Like, the, the, the option is, as Michael said, we either raise income, we raise taxes, right? That's an option. Or we set priorities on lowering what we what we believe is too much spending to bring it down to your sixty percent. No, I'm just we, saying right now the th- the three in the next three weeks what is possible or you know I and and maybe Michael knows more but my understanding from reading the news is that these long term yes raising taxes will not solve for the immediate thing that basically we won't have enough money to pay federal employees and state employees we won't be able to pay our debt given the current. Uh, but but Michael, maybe you know more about this. Yeah, that's correct. Can I can well, I chime in for I, I, go ahead? I want to chime in for a second Jeffrey, here because I, I want to fill in for folks who may be listening to this saying, "What in God's name are they talking about?" Um, <clears throat> let's talk about um, what the uh, U.S. spending is, and let's put this in perspective. So when we're talking about what we're going to have to cut people understand. So Mm. uh, mandatory entitlement benefits constitute 64% of government spending. That's $3.8 trillion. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment benefits, and other spending. That's absolutely mandatory. Net interest is 4.3%. And discretionary spending, that's where the government has wiggle room only constitutes 29% of the budget. And that discretionary uh, budget includes defense and non-defense. So when you're talking about cutting, you're talking about having only 29% of the budget available to cut mm. to uh, pay these bills. So um, I, I, I'm certainly uh, not a wise move for people to delve into the uh, entitlement benefits and say, hey, we're going to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and unemployment benefits. Imagine what that would do to the system. So let's put this in Mm. perspective when Mm. we're having this discussion. The government has obligations, and uh, we have to meet those obligations. And if you want to talk about cutting, put some things on the table. And what's Mm going to be cut? to further mm-hmm. this discussion. And and the other thing to take into consideration, the debt, it, it, this is a political game that we're witnessing here. The Republicans had absolutely no problem approving spending and tax cuts when Donald Trump was in office, and they had absolutely no problem raising the debt limit when he was in office, all of a sudden we've got mm. uh, President Biden in office. It becomes, oh, we can't do this. Uh, we have to control our spending. Mm. It's the most hypocritical thing uh, I've seen. And, uh, you know, let's get down to the business of addressing what our priorities are as a government and taking care of those obligations that we uh, have and we want, and we want to take care of people, and this is how you do it. I want to take it even more grassroots. I grew up as a a young kid and a young man in Washington, D.C., 
My father worked for the federal government every year at debt ceiling time. Everyone, every federal employee knew it was coming. There was an increase in panic buying. You would see this huge increase in Virginia, metropolitan Virginia, metropolitan Maryland, Monkey County, Montgomery County, Maryland, Arlington County, Virginia, all through the district. Federal employees were buy, stockpiling anything they can get in food. It made the the blizzard uh, panic buying of milk and bread in this area look like child's play. They knew there was a potential they were going to be without money. They could not pay the bills. They could not they could not pay the groceries. They couldn't buy groceries. So they would panic buy. Every year this happened and this was in the 70s. Hmm. So and this was a time of rampant inflation and it was it was something that struck me very strongly. It impressed me immediately as a young man what this meant. It meant that every millions of people were held hostage by mm. Congress for them to play out this little game of theirs. And it, it soured me for many years on politics. And it still flavors it. I, I admit that. But this, I think, is the grassroots. This is where it, it really touches is it impacts and it can be just devastating for millions of people. And the idea that this government thinks that it's going to come in under budget, that doesn't happen. And well, again, Michael, what me, do you got? Let me just clarify one one time, once again, raising the debt limit is not, my friend Frank, is not tied to spending or income. Raising the debt limit is only a basically a symbolic piece that says we will pay our current bills as a country. If then the symbol is we're not going to pay our bills, that's as a country, that's where the economic disturbance or earthquake starts because the United States now has said, if we owe you money, whether it's an employee or it's one of the bills for something we've bought, then Nick's example is absolutely correct. People start to panic. And if I'm an employee, I work for, let's say, the uh, IRS. National Park Service. Uh, the National Park Service. And they say, we're not going to pay our bills because we're not going to uh, raise the debt limit. So spending still goes on. But now, and Janet Yellen has already done this Michael. because actually we reached our debt limit back in, I think it was in February. Michael. And what she's been doing is to maneuver paying some bills, let others go in order to keep us afloat until June 1 when the whole thing collapses. It doesn't collapse on June 1. Michael, how much, at what point? of trillions of dollars, would you be willing to raise the debt limit? Is there any point that you would say we can't go any higher in today's economy? Is there a point that you would not, given today's economy, that you would not want to vote for an increase in the debt limit? But but Frank, the, the, the problem is that's not the question. It the is question the is, question. the question, hold on, Frank, hold on. The question is, at what point do we keep spending without having the offset of either income or cuts to allow that spending? That's not the debt limit. Those are two 
separate items. Now, your, the answer to your question from my standpoint is there is a limit for me in terms of how much spending would I like to authorize without having either an, uh, an increase in income that is higher taxes or cuts in spending. And that's the budgetary process. We're paying off the debts that have already been incurred. That's the debt limit. But the spending and the income is the budgetary process, a whole different animal. And that's what I am just so frustrated, both in terms of my, uh, 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 my ability to understand how our economy works and then the lack of understanding of our citizens in terms of how the economy works. Because I think, as Jeff said, we're being manipulated by a political theater. I think some of that political theater, uh, we, we understand where it comes from. And it's also, I think, exacerbated by recent events. You know, we went through COVID and the government was, in many respects, an employer of last resort when a lot of people couldn't work. And the government had to infuse quite a bit of cash into what was a stalled economy because of COVID. Uh, kept people afloat, kept businesses afloat. And so there were extraordinary measures that were taken in recent years, both in the Trump administration and the Biden administration, uh, and for funding things like you know COVID research to get to the vaccines that we needed. And then lo and behold, hot on the heels of that, you know, Putin decides that he's going to, you know, start his plan for world domination. And so now we're facing additional what is extraordinary spending to deal with the Ukraine war. Now, you know, Frank raises the issue about, well, why don't we make it a surtax or let's call it an obvious tax? I think that there are many Americans in spirit who support the notion of Ukraine's rights, freedoms, and are willing to continue supporting the war. If that tax was obviated, in other words, you're going to have to pony up directly for this, kids. I think that a lot of that support would would fade pretty quickly. There'd be some people I'd support it certainly because I believe in in you have to control belligerents and dictatorships where they are, and that's just the way it is. You know, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, and that vigilance costs money. That said, there are people who would probably balk either because of their own financial circumstances or their own beliefs, and they would back off. Now. I muse, if you will, at, you know, I hear these billions of dollars going out to support the war. And I look at the number of taxpayers in the United States. I do a little bit of quick third grade math with big numbers in my head. And I say, okay, the war is now costing me and my family as three of 336 million people and one family in the US and 85 million taxpayers. It comes down to, okay, the war in Ukraine's costing me so far about 3,000 bucks. Somewhere in my future, we can't point to a day, but somewhere in my future, that invoice for the war is buried in my annual tax returns. That's just the way it is. But I get it. I'm fine with that. Then also the infusion of cash throughout COVID, which I believe was necessary, and I believe at the time did a number of good things for our country. In, in both administrations, it was necessary. So it whether you were going to do it through direct cash infusion 
or some people thought printing money. Of course, printing money, as we all know, reduces the value of every single dollar. A dollar suddenly becomes 98 cents, 90 cents, 80 cents, you know, and that I believe is a hallmark of why many people thought that inflation was going to follow, you know, what happened with COVID. And, you know, here we are. And I think, in fact, inflation is a collateral element of of solving the COVID problem, the crisis. Because guess what? Inflation exists all around the world. It, we, we are not alone in this. And then there are supply, supply chain issues, which exacerbate it as well. This is a complex issue, and Putin isn't making it any easier. All that said, here again, Congress, returning to the topic at hand, Congress has the ability for reasons ordinary and reasons extraordinary to raise the debt limit. Congress can do that. And in this case, I think it really comes down to opportunistic theatrics. But I believe in the next couple of weeks, they'll get it done. I wish that news outlets could focus more on the technical nitty gritty of what's going on with the debt ceiling. You know, and you know, Frank, you rightly raised the issue. It's an important issue. And, you know, Frank sees it as something that a lot of people are not paying the the due attention it deserves or having a position. And and I think that understanding it, understanding the economics, you know, it it's the visuals aren't strong enough for the major news media to really push it out front and center, but to focus, in fact, on the theatrics, the political sound bites from both sides of the aisle, but not actually cobbling together uh, a graphic discourse that really explains what's going on. And I think that we would all be better served if they could do that. No, I think you're right, uh, Pete. Uh, we just need to just need to reassess some things, I think. But I think that's part of the day, daily life is you reassess and the government needs to reassess how it's handling its money. Well, you know, there's a corollary here, Nick. You know, mm -hmm. I want to go out and I want to buy something. I have to get approval from Congress. My wife. <laughs> Oh, you yeah, know, yeah, does, does, does the, you know, the spousal <laughs> approval, the spousal approval doesn't fall very far away from what's going on with Congress. This is a spousal approval thing between the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a house divided. It's uh, <laughs> looking shaky at yes. the very least. Well, I it, let, let's shift it for just a second. Shift. Go right ahead. What I agree. What I agree is is Frank's main argument. We can't keep spending True. ad nauseum without any means of paying those debts as we spend or as we budget. And that is a not only a valid point, but one that uh, uh, and there is one other method, for example, that I did forget. It's not just a matter of raising taxes and cutting spending. The economy can grow, too, which in mm -hmm. essence then grows the amount of income that we get. So we don't necessarily have to increase taxes in order for more money to come into the coffers of, the, uh, of any government, whether it's local, state, or national. But if your economy starts to grow, and again, there's another game that's but played Michael. with that. Michael, let me yes. at 3.4% unemployment, the economy has grown. I don't think there's a whole lot more room for us to be optimistic about at least on the employment side of the economy growing. 
Well, it's not just unemployment, Frank. It's also uh, the increase in the number of businesses. For example, if someone discovered tomorrow how to really produce coal fusion, the economy could explode. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's a corollary in terms of increase in uh, uh, in employment with that, but that new business, that new endeavor then would infuse more money into the system. And there's a lot of projections that are done by economists when a politician asks, what's the future look like? Uh, and it's all crystal ball reading. That's all it is. Because we don't know because uh, we don't know <laughs> what the various uh, variables might be. Uh, for example, the war in Ukraine in Ukraine was not necessarily expected. When it happened, suddenly there's an economic burden that's put on all of the countries in support of Ukraine, which now brings down our ability to grow because you're putting money at a much faster rate into the support of Ukraine. I like your idea, uh, Frank, of a special tax, and let's call it the the Ukrainian tax. Let's let Congress debate that, and then let's let's let Congress uh, send a bill to the president that he signs, telling us all that there will be a special tax. It'll have this opening and this closing date. Um, and here's how much each one of us will contribute to that. I think that's a legitimate debate and some legitimate political discussion about that. Uh, we haven't had that because Congress is in and of itself dysfunctional, you know, around ideas or innovations like that. What do you others think? I sit here and I say, oh, my God, thank God I'm in state government and not federal government. <laughs> that just keeps resonating through my mind. I'm like, my God, uh, you know, it, and repeatedly we see some of the issues that the federal government should be dealing with being kicked back to the states. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, we're, we're having to take on far more tasks than uh, we have had in past history because of this. And uh, I'm going to just leave it at I'm glad I'm in the state house in Boston and not the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. I'll leave where it there. Where things can be a little more collegial, where you can you can actually have an impact. And yeah. get something that, done. Um, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. There is a sense of stagnation in uh, in, in the in Congress. Well, there's also don't forget, there's also, too, that that wonderful backstop that most state governments have is that state governments cannot deficit spend. You have to balance your budget. The federal government in our system is the only entity that can deficit spend. In other words, they've got a big, massive credit card that they can use mm -hmm. when needed. And I guess, uh, you know, and, and this, and I know, Frank, you will react to this, but again, that's, that's basically what raising the debt limit is, is just raising the limit that we can, you know, uh, uh, to match what we've already committed to on the credit card. Well, the other element, too, about the credit card, which is, by the way, a great analogy, is that and, you know, we get these things in the mail saying, hey, we're increasing your your credit ceiling. Uh, you can go out and buy more stuff and it's all cool because they're trying to encourage business. And for people who have good credit, you know, the credit card companies will often step up and do that. 
But, you know, the net of it, you know, the risk of it, of course, is you go out and you spend more and now you are taking on more debt service. And what we've seen recently with the Fed is that the cost of that debt service is going up. Debt service with increased interest rates, which call it long-term treasury bonds, whatever, as people buy new bonds at higher interest rates, gradually as a sidebar function of what's going on with raising the debt ceiling is that the federal government ends up having to pay a higher interest rate in the net in the long term. So the cost of the debt service for the federal government becomes mm -hmm. more dear. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, if you were to look at a pie chart of all the federal spending, the pie chart you know, has in it you know, the cost of the debt service, which can be greater or smaller. And of course, it's an inducement to try to get the total amount of debt down in times where the interest rate tends to be higher than we would like. We've actually enjoyed both directly and indirectly the fact that for some time now, we've had very low cost of money. And the very low cost of money has benefited us directly as people who go out and buy things, cars, houses. <laughs> but the very low cost of money also has benefited the federal government. And you know the sands are shifting there and that needs to be managed pretty carefully because you know household budgets and federal budgets can capsize the reasons for raising the debt ceiling at this point given what i mentioned earlier about extraordinary expenses and extraordinary circumstances that we're in at the moment i think are all valid and i think ultimately we're going to have to do that there's just no choice i hearken back to the clinton years briefly where you may recall there was a very very public campaign that was run in Clinton's later years in office about reducing the amount of debt and the amount of debt that we were placing on our children. And they kept hammering that and hammering that through public service announcements on TV and so on. And they actually reduced the debt load pretty substantially to get the federal government to a point where there was actually a surplus. I think some type of reasonable austerity plan at some point, having come out of COVID, having solved those problems, some kind of austerity plan could be encouraged. People are spending a lot of money right now. It's either money that they have or it's money that they are borrowing personally. Right, right. Um, and so we could be better served and solve some of the inflation problem if we were to wage a campaign publicly about reasonable spending and managing personal budgets. Because what that would do is that would shift the supply-demand equation to something that would start to tame the higher prices. That's just me. I could be wrong. Yeah, that's, ultimately, that's what the, Dennis Miller always used to yeah. say at the end of his monologues. And <laughs> ultimately, the consumer is at fault for the problems. We, the, we, me, we the consumers, we are. At let home. me follow up. Let me follow up. Please, Frank, for a minute, mm -hmm. Michael. At some point, if you have a personal credit card and you reach the bank's debt limit, right? Yep. Yep. And the bank doesn't feel that you can in a position to pay anymore. And so they will not raise the debt limit. And now you're in a real financial crisis because you probably <coughs> will have to declare bankruptcy. Now, internationally, if China and the European nations and other countries of the world feel that we've raised our debt limit so high that we don't have the ability to pay off that debt limit, or they don't want us to continue 
being the international currency. In other words, right now the United States has probably trillions of dollars of other countries' money in its banks because internationally to set up, to, to settle uh, bills or debts, it's in U.S. dollars. So they decide, nah, the United States has raised it too high. They can't possibly pay it. We're now going to name the yen as the international currency of the world and all our bills. So all that money in the United States then goes to China, and it's in Chinese banks, and the settling up of international debts is in the end. That could happen with or without us reaching the debt limit, Frank. Mm-hmm. In other words, if mm-hmm. if a creditor says, I don't think that you're paying your bills on time, and therefore I'm going to call due the entire balance of the loan that you took, you then have to scramble to try to find a way to pay it. You don't necessarily have to go into bankruptcy. You can uh, determine that I'm not. I, I'm going to pay this creditor, but I'm not going to pay that one. And since January, to keep up with the uh, with the analogy, that's what Janet Yellen has been doing: sort of shifting money around. I'll pay this bill because uh, that one can wait another 15 days, or that bill. But the main currency of the world is typically built on the most stable currency of the most stable system. And right now, the most stable system, primarily because the United States in its 200 and something year history has always paid its debts. We're like in the Game of Thrones, uh, you know, the Lannisters. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Lannister always, always pays pay his debts. debts. We always pay our debts. So if you decide that you're not going to pay your debt, which is what not raising the debt ceiling would do, would send a message to the rest of the world, we're now not going to pay our debts. In other words, pay everybody. We're going to pick and choose. That throws panic into the system. And your point is well taken, Frank. At that point, who has the most stable currency? And it 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 would appear that that wouldn't be the United States. So the rest of the world would start looking and saying, okay, who can we rely on where they're always going to pay their debts? And we can then hang our, our economic well-being around that currency. Your point is well taken, Frank, but it really is a matter of uh, your your argument actually makes the case for us to raise the debt limit. Let us not become not without economies. a plan. I'm not opposed. What what I'm arguing for at this point of time, we have to sit down and begin an outline of a plan. Hey, I, I don't want to. I don't want to go away from this subject. But uh, speaking of debts. I'm wondering if uh, Donald Trump is going to pay the five million dollars to the plaintiff who got a tremendous Agreed. verdict against him. Never, never <laughs> will he pay. Never. Agreed. I was going to bring that Agreed. up. I thought we agreed. Yeah, let's shift. We could, we could lighten the mood. We could lighten the mood. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of Donald, he uh, he had a little town hall on CNN the other night. Uh, oh, to the M to the G. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It was uh, it was kind of universally reviled as just a big, big error on the part of uh, CNN. And 
it just I don't know, Frank, uh, I know you're a registered Democrat, but I think that with that, you're flying under false colors. So I, I, I I'm going to I'm going to put leave it that way. No but way. No way. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking for a third party, though. There, I, yes. I think we're all looking for a third My or fourth or fifth party. For a third party. Well, there, there is Absolutely. a third party. There Absolutely. is one. Oh, that's uh, Yang's Yang's party, right? No, yeah. no, there is a third party. Oh, yeah. Down MAGA. the road? MAGA uh, is, you have to oh, look oh, at MAGA okay. as a third party. Let me You're make like my case. Viewing it like a tea party sort of thing, yeah. Well, that's how it started. The tea yeah, party, exactly. TEA, became the tea party, capital T for Trump. And that stands for trouble. And we got trouble right here in River City. Call it what you will. But the net of it is that and and this came out, by the way, only like in this past week or so in trying to drill down into what is called the level of commitment, level of loyalty of persons who would continue to support Trump under all circumstances, given the recent indictment and other woes. The fact that there are people who just refuse to let go of their allegiance to Mm -hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As he said, you know, he could go out on Fifth Avenue and kill somebody and mm-hmm. so on. Well, 15 percent of the public at large is just fine with that. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. And they're loyal to him. And and there's another corollary to this that's fascinating uh, because he controls 15 percent of the votes with you know absolute powers, it would appear. The Republicans being the party closer to him, the one he aligned himself with originally, they have no choice if they mm-hmm. really wish to prevail to find some way to incorporate his loyalty and powers into their camp they're they're stuck it's like it's like a ransom you know he he can hold the traditional mm-hmm. republican party for ransom through the power of the people who continue to follow him with, without any you know critical concern so i really regard that as a third party but it's a third party that sits under the umbrella for better or ill, mostly ill, of the Republican Party. It's not truly an independent party. We as Democrats, for instance, would probably not say, well, let's see if we can't rec- <laughs> find a way to to bring Trump voters over to our side and get right. Trump. Imagine right. if Trump came to the political forum as a Democrat and did the same thing. You know, where would history have taken all that? We can't know. But it forces people into twisting themselves into compromises that they probably can't sleep very well with at night. It's it's really unfortunate. But th- there's a hostage taking that's going on here mm-hmm. more than anything else. And until 2024 rolls by and let us presume in the future that he doesn't win, we don't even know if that will be the end of it or not, or if it will just continue the charade of the election having been stolen again, and he can continue with you know the general grift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, it's, I, it's a I, very different landscape than what we than how we see it. Uh, uh, as as a piece of their prognostication, I'd like to ask uh, Nantalia what. It seems to me that based on what he did last night and on Monday when we found out the verdict or Tuesday when we found out the verdict uh, in the case, I don't see how any woman in this country could even entertain the idea of voting for Trump as president. Your view. I mean, Michael, I wish you were right, but we need to remember that the first time he was elected, do you remember we had that video recording mm-hmm. of grabbing, you right. know, using really 
vulgar language and white women voted for Trump. So I do not have the trust that, you know, this, this, the way he continues to humiliate and put down people and his misogynistic kind of approach is actually going to dissuade some women from voting from him. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to, you know, as the, as the only woman on the panel, I think that's why you asked me, but there is a lot of internalized sort of sexism mm-hmm. that happens. And a lot of, you know, I'm sure women, even in the case of sexual violence, these questions of like, well, maybe she deserved her, or maybe she wanted, her, or maybe she was flirting with him, or maybe, you know, it's like all of this mm-hmm. internalized sexism that happens, which is maybe a coping strategy of like, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, I would say, you know, the data shows that the data says one in five, but I'm sure many, many, many women have been exposed to sexual harassment, right? Oh, and yeah. some of the ways that we deal with that is to play it down and say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal or it wasn't that important. And so there's this dissonance when someone steps forward, wins, you know, a case, and then you kind of, you're like, wait, what? I didn't step up. I haven't accused my accuser. I mean, I'm one of those women. I have been sexually harassed and I have never stepped forward to like name the person or, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't, but it was in the workplace, you know, senior men. But I haven't done it because it's like, I don't want to put myself through that. And of course, I'm, I'm very proud when women do it. So I, I think it's hard to say that women will, you know, that that internal dissonance of like, we live in a world where we are exposed to sexual harassment, to attacks all the time, and know that that's not going to change overnight. And so somehow people give up and 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 play it down, play it, play down the importance. So I don't know, Michael, I, I wish I wish it was the case. Like when I heard the first, you know, the sort of grabbing language and, you know, I thought I thought that was going to be the end of it. I thought it was going to be enough. Yeah. yeah but then, and and that's, the heartbreak, that's the heartbreaking part of all of this is that you just it just cannot it, it, it puts a stamp of approval on it, it says, yeah, you're right. You can do this. You can do this. It's not a problem. Well, it's the difference between being a politician and being a celebrity. The loyalty that Trump has is his celebrity. It has nothing to do, nothing. Let me repeat that. Nothing, nothing, nothing with politics or his beliefs or what he may or may not have done for the good of the country or whatever they may want to claim. It's all about celebrity. And if you look at Trump and DeSantis side by side, DeSantis is trying to position himself very much like Trump to run a culture wars campaign between Disney, woke, all of that stuff. But And in, at the end of the day, DeSantis is not generating the same numbers that Trump does doing the same thing because of the fact that DeSantis is not a celebrity. He is a politician. He doesn't have that 15% or so of people who are loyal to him just because he happens to be DeSantis, where Trump has that 15% in his pocket just because he happens to be Trump. And that 15% is very powerful. It gets to my point where I think that anybody running for president should have to run for a state or lesser level office, either be a governor, a senator, a representative, but perform some kind of government service in an elected position for at least one full term of office. And in so doing, if there are crazies that want to get involved and become president, like right now we talk about you know billionaire businessmen that we know who have toyed with the idea of running for office. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, toyed with the idea. Elon Musk. 
Elon Musk, Mark Cuban, you know, the number mm -hmm. of, you know, billionaires that are out there with their own political belief system, you know, toy with the notion of running for national office, which is, of course, you know, the presidency. But, you know, at end of day, I think in terms of, you know, an amendment to the Constitution, because of the fact that the president represents all of the people, I think that the president needs to demonstrate public service at some state level first mm -hmm. before being eligible to be president. It doesn't eliminate anybody's ability to be president, but it tests their mettle to mm -hmm. make sure that they're qualified to be president. They get to learn the inner workings of government and manage to do that you know, on the job training without necessarily, you know, going directly into the White House. Yeah, this this, this brings up a point that's always struck me. It's, it's something that just kind of hit me hard one day is I uh, you, you, I have many friends who are in business, very successful, and they work for people who are even more successful than themselves and have established these very thriving businesses that carry on and uh, just meet their numbers quarter after quarter. Mm -hmm. And they think that's the way government should be run. And it kind of reminds me of a character out of uh, Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, a fellow by the name of Hooper. The very beginning of the novel, Hooper is this uh, lower officer, a, a, a lieutenant. And mm -hmm. he is always talking about how what happens in the army, could never they could never get away with that in business. You could never run the army the way you run the bi uh, business. You couldn't do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And they want government run the same way. They want it run like a business. It's not a business. Government's an art. Government's a faulty art form. It's a sloppy art form because you're dealing with people. Basic. That's it. You're dealing with their lives. You're dealing with how they live their lives. You're dealing with creating an atmosphere of inclusiveness or non-inclusiveness, if that's your, if that's mm -hmm. what you've been elected to do. But it's well, not a business. I mentioned earlier that the government is the employer of last resort when things go south. Exactly right. COVID. That's and, right. You know that what none of that was a business decision. No, no, and that's what what I I think most disturbed Trump was the fact that this put a spanner into his is 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 nicely planned mm -hmm. in his mind layout for how he was going to run this government as a business right. that right. was going to make him and I think that's basically what it nails it goes down to. What can I, you know? If, yeah. if anything that's good for Donald Trump is good for the country, what's good for General Bull Moose is good for the USA. Right. Speaking of what's good for Trump, obviously oxygen is good for Trump, and he got plenty of it with CNN. <laughs> and you brought that issue up earlier, and I want to yeah. return to it. Uh, I thought it was premature. Oh, at least, yeah, at the very least, to yeah. to to provide full coverage. Now, yes, yeah, someone should have recorded it. And maybe we could have pulled sound bites out of it, but to to take on the whole thing mm -hmm. uh, live, I. I just didn't think that it served the public interest all that well. Well, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of issue with that, Pete, in that, again, in terms of Trump's uh, being found guilty in the civil suit, uh, I think his admission that, yes, this is the way I view women uh, and his continuing the lies around the, the 2020 election. I think now is actually a good time for the country to sort of revisit who is this person who considers himself qualified and, again, running for the highest office in the world. And it should remind us 
of everything you just said about, uh, you know, having some experience before one takes over the office of president, which I don't necessarily agree with, but I think it does demonstrate that knowing who these people are is an essential part of that political process. And I saw from just the, I didn't watch the whole thing, but from the sound bites that I've seen so far, I think Trump opened up a hole and is either getting ready to jump into it or has already jumped into it. And if people, and if our citizens don't see that, that's where I think Natalia's point of view is, 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 you know, we've got to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. If there are women out there who in the last couple of days and men who see this guy for what he says he is, and we don't believe him, then shame on us. But that's the point. If you can, mm-hmm. if you can, if you can garner 15 to 20% <clears throat> of absolute loyalty mm-hmm. from, from the people who vote. And, you know, I also have to believe by the way, that the people in the MAGA camp probably vote with some degree of passion. That is that, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're compelled to get out there and support their guy. Right. They'll come um, out en masse. They will do it and they will do it repeatedly. Yeah. And that's where independents and Democrats and Republicans who care have to step up and find that same passion. Mm-hmm. It's often been the case of, you know, where's the passion in the Democratic Party? You know, there's this learned discourse that goes on and, you know, intellectual debate about this law, that law. And everybody goes, yeah, great. You know, and it always ends with, well, we need to write a sternly worded letter to the Times. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think on that note, we might want to close it up a little bit here. Uh, we could go on all day, but I think another more perfect union hour has flown by. I wanted to go on all day. But, all right. But... <laughs> well, we'll do that. Uh, that'll be a marathon. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we do have to today say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, and that website is wfpr.fm. So today, for our guest, Frank Falvey, thank you, Frank, for coming in. Yes. Dr. Natalia Linos. Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy. As always, our station manager, Peter J. And I am, again, as always, Nick Remesong. Thank you for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect you. This is Franklin Public Radio.